Okay, good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. It is June the 21st. I think that is the date for uh, the longest daylight day of the year, at least uh, in Europe. Here in Dubai, it doesn't make a huge difference to us. But um, so it is, it's actually uh, it's the end of summer, if you like, at the start of the day is getting darker again. But great to have um, everybody with us. Uh, Rustin Edwards, Head of Pure Oil Procurement at Euronav. And for the first time joining us, I'd like to do a special welcome to David Wech, Chief Economist at Vortexa, and Andy Critchlow, Head of News, EMEA, SMP Global Commodity Insights. Thanks so much, gentlemen, for joining us today um, as we progress through uh, the end of June, the end of the first half of the year, which has had a lot of headlines uh, and a lot of expectations set on it. Um, so uh, let me go to you first, Rustin, uh, with your take on how we end the first half of this year from a demand uh, perspective, if you like, uh, and, and your outlook, therefore, for the next uh, couple of quarters. Um, well, thank you and good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, from a demand outlook for the end of the uh, first half of the year, I don't see much change from where we're at right now. I think price-wise, we'll probably be meandering around... $75, $76 in Brent. I don't see any impetus to permit for it to move higher um, at this moment in time because there is a lot of uh, lacking, uh, missing parts to the whole thesis of stronger demand going into the second half of the year. Um, you still have very poor naphtha demand, which is part of the pet chem feed, which goes into make plastic, goes into make consumer goods. And with the low manufacturing PMI data out of China, as well as other areas in Asia, it shows that plastic demand is probably not going to recover in the second half of the year. That does impact refinery runs and what they can produce. Um, jet fuel demand is probably the one piece that probably could have some more upside potential. But again, it doesn't look like it's heading that way just yet. Uh, still not seeing the uh, consumption coming out of the U.S. or Asia. And there's a lot to be said about uh, you know, more fuel efficient vehicles and more fuel efficient jet fuel. I think Bloomberg had an article on that with... Uh, you know, more fuel efficient jets are actually reducing the demand for jet fuel in the United States. And that's probably going to spread to other areas around the world. So um, second half of the year, I don't see $100 crude. I don't see $80 crude. I think we probably meander in the same range bound 74, 77 until there's a uh, real change in the demand profile or, you know, Saudi just keeps cutting to infinity. Okay, thanks, Rustin. Uh, David, let me go to you with that. And would you agree we're going to trade in such a tight range? I mean, 75 to 78 is pretty tight, considering the volatility and brand uh, and bandwidth we've had to trade in the last uh, you know, few months, I suppose, uh, and have got used to trading in a very wide range. Would you agree with that? And, and why? And why not? Yeah, forecasting oil prices is always a very difficult business, um, and I don't want to make too strong claims there. Um, I, I, I would agree with what Rustin said, uh, basically on the demand side. I don't necessarily see particularly much upside. Uh, actually, China specifically has already shown much higher imports over the last eight months than the period before. Um, but um, one of the key messages I'm currently giving to clients is that I think that the weakness of prices over the last couple of months has been much more a function of very high supplies rather than disappointing demand. Um, so basically countries like Iran, uh, pretty much all other OPEC countries are producing and exporting at a very high rate. Yeah? Um, there have been a lot of cuts announced, but the reality mm -hmm. is that the supplies that hit 
think the market is still very high. Um, countries like the US and Russia have also exported at a very high level. So it's basically the, the very easy availability of barrels that has kept prices under pressure. Uh, and there can be so many things that could happen to change that. Yeah, I mean, we do have uh, new cuts being announced and there is evidently some seriousness that's behind that in terms of OSP pricing or underpinned by OSP pricing. Mm -hmm. um, we have currently barely any outages. There is a little bit this issue with Iraq and Kirkuk girls to, to, um, to Turkey and there's the wildfires in Canada, but that's it. Everybody else is producing flat out. So if we lose some of that supply for whatever reason, I do think it's actually well possible that crude markets could tighten relatively quickly and then there is upside for prices. Okay, thanks, David. So, Andy, on that point of sort of plentiful supply at the moment, uh, uh, you know, we are, though, seeing evidence of the Saudi cuts. Not, I'm not talking about their recent announcement, the most recent one, but the last few months, we've seen evidence of that. Uh, uh, are, we, are we or are we not? I mean, uh, and of course, Russia, people are discounting that it's cutting at all. But would you agree there's plenty of oil out there? And, you know, therefore, have the OPEC cuts that were previously pledged had any impact whatsoever? Uh, I think from what we're seeing, the world's awash with crude at the moment, whether it's Iranian crude, um, whether it's Russian crude and oil products, um, uh, all the evidence from what we track in terms of uh, dark ship to ship transfers, 225% increase year on year. And what we've seen in that area, um, uh, uh, you know, you have major Gulf producers still every day coming out with policy announcements that they plan to increase capacity. Um, um, if you are, you know, in a position to ex export more crude out of uh, West Africa at the moment, you are doing it. Um, the world's awash with, with with oil, and you know, in many ways, if you look at where prices are at the moment, it, it, I wouldn't say it's a miracle where they've held up, but it, it is. It's quite astonishing when you look at the, um, you know, certainly in my reporting career, I've got to think back to two thousand and eight to see a more unsettling set of economic. Uh, print data coming out on a daily basis you know we have today um, um uk inflation has remained uh, at 8.7 percent fifth largest economy in the world but the real key thing here is core inflation which surged in the uk core inflation strips out uh, energy and commodity costs so the significance of that really is that you know and it was mentioned by one of the previous speakers here that that you're going to get seasonal demand start to kick in um, not just through summer driving season, but you're going to start getting in the northern hemisphere uh, 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 stock builds um, for Q3 and Q4 winter demand, uh, especially in gas. You know, if you look at crude on an average basis, we're down over 22 percent. Um, um, so actually, that's very deflationary. Uh, but inflation in some of these major economies hasn't moved. Um, um, so, you know, we're now in a situation where central banks they are the key determinants here. So the Bank of England tomorrow nailed on uh, rate increase. The Fed has said that it will increase rates at least twice this year. The cost of capital, the cost of debt, the real drivers for economic growth here are going to be tightened uh, more and more. That's going to feed through uh, to demand. Where's all, all this all going to go? Coming back to OPEC, they're going to have some hard decisions at the end of the year because they back themselves into a corner now with all these cuts. How much more can they cut to defend this this very clear price floor of seventy dollars a barrel? Yeah, and I mean, as you said, and and Saudi Arabia has clearly taken it upon itself to do any further cuts if required. Uh, 
to be, and also for the, for the organization, as you said, to remain credible. They've cut as much as they can, most of them, and they, they cannot do any more. Ralston, um, hello again. Let me just go to you uh, on, on some of those points. Uh, OPEC cutting. Uh, we have uh, an article in the bulletin this morning talking about how China took record numbers of crude from Russia in May, uh, while Saudi crude, percentage-wise at least, dropped to China. Um, and yet we've had people saying, well, no, Saudi sort of exports to China, are, even with those OSP increases, are, are remaining constant, but China's just taking more from Russia, uh, you know, incrementally. Where, where, where are we on that in, in your point of view of China and in terms of its storage sort of strategy? Is it taking in crude still because it wants to store, 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 save for a rainy day? Well, I mean, China is building stocks in their in inland storage, but they're also increasing the amount of clean product exports out of the country. I mean, they've had a record amount of exports. They've issued another round of export quotas as well. Uh, mm -hmm. So there is that fact that in order to, my take on that is that China is trying to drive their GDP or maintain a stabler G GDP. And so therefore they run more crude, which adds more uh, activity to the economy, exports more products out of their economy. Therefore, they can stabilize GDP on some level versus what they have internally on their growth demand. Um, one other aspect of that is that the uh, uh, teapot refineries that normally run a bitumen mix have been given some crude allocations, which means that they can now transfer out of running fuel oil mixes into running actual crude oil. So it's just an increase in economic activity and exporting more product out into the marketplace. I mean, if you run Russian crude, it's a massive margin. And you take the discounts you get for Russian crude on top of the clean product you get once it's refined out. Uh, you know, $30, $40 a barrel, have a nice day, you know, take that every day of the week. So uh, yeah, I think there's just a pure economic case around all that. And, uh, you know, I think they'll continue doing so. Um, I think the most recent thing I saw was that uh, the ESPO barrels that were going into India have now reshift backed up into China. Um, so there is a definite demand there for them to continue to run or store crude and uh, export the products. And we also see this on the ton miles for tankers. I mean, tanker rates, despite a million barrel OPEC cut, actually went up. Uh, because there is more demand pull out of long-haul crude into Asia uh, versus the Middle East, which is keeping ton miles tight and thus keeping tanker rates supported. Okay, and of course, another another sort of, I suppose, explanation for China's export product exports is that its domestic demand has not picked up as much as uh, perhaps uh, people wanted it to uh, yet. Um, David, back to you. Let's talk a little about data. Uh, and I know that, um, you know, there's been... Uh, a lot of comments. We have an interview coming up actually later today with Dr. Anas Lahaji, who was sort of really highlighting to us this week that there's so much missing data. And he's not just talking about Russian dark crude, Iranian crude, et cetera. That's part of it. But even in the US, the EIA data is a bit confusing. The balances are not sort of missing bits that people can't explain. Do you think that's really become a, a sort of chronic problem for, for the industry? Yeah, that has always been a problem. Uh, I have about 20 years of experience in modeling supply demand. Uh, and for the last two years, I'm enjoying it with Hexa, all this seaborne uh, trade data. Um, and um, yeah, you know, part of the solution for my part is uh, just focus on the seaborne trade because you will never know what Chinese oil demand is. You will never really know what Russian or Saudi Arabian or whatever crude production is because there is no way for an independent source to know that. Yeah? Um, and uh, there are a lot of different uh, problems in terms of methodology. And yes, I fully agree. There is a lot of countries uh, that have issues with their reporting, uh, their different approaches. There is incomplete data. There is delayed data. Uh, so we're always a little bit in the dark. Yeah? And uh, 
um, but we can actually see very well what is on the sea. Yeah? So we are not really missing bells there. There may be the occasional one or other cargo that is uh, dark, but uh, also in retrospect, you can basically type of find out what is the most likely thing, what has happened there. We're spending a lot of time to, to decipher these develop flows as well. Um, so I don't think we miss a lot. Um, and um, I, if we allow quickly, I wanted to follow up on, on two things. Uh, the one is that Russian crude exports are declining. Yeah, they're declining seasonally. They have been they've reached a peak in March, and since then they're declining. That is what made them made it easy for them to announce their cut because they knew that their exports would decline yes. seasonally. Yeah, but uh, uh, that's the one thing. The other thing is that so far we don't really see higher product exports out of China. Uh, I agree, demand domestically is probably disappointing somewhat, um, but we are not sure. First of all, it's really so important for Chinese refiners because it's all set by this, this scene is set by the government and they need these quotas. Um, and at this point of time, we don't see yet any indication that the Chinese government would actually incentivate refiners to export more to support the GDP. That's definitely an option later in the year, uh, but it's not our base case. Okay, well, we'd like to see disagreement on this show. Uh, Andy, just to go to you on that point of Russian crude exports, we have another headline in news article saying it's still higher than before it pledged to cut. And yet, uh, David is saying their production uh, is definitely declining now. Is that the sense that you get uh, from the evidence that we have out there? Well, I mean, you would expect Russian production to decline. I mean, such a large percentage of Russian production uh, uh, goes to the domestic economy. Igor Sechin, the head of uh, Rosneft, um, um, in, in somewhat of a, of a plea, really, um, uh, over the weekend uh, at the St. Petersburg Forum, um, uh, was campaigning for OPEC to look more at export data as opposed to production data, which kind of levels things up in terms of how uh, the group uh, views uh, Russia's overall impact for the market. I mean, you know, by some measures, Russia's seaborne uh, exports have actually uh, uh, increased, you know, something in the region of 3.6, uh, uh, 3 million barrels a day now. I think that's up over 250,000 barrels from the beginning of 2023. 20, uh, that's Russian uh, oil on the water. Um, uh, uh, you know, the domestic economy uh, has been hit by the war. Uh, uh, that stands to reason, um, um, you know, less service economy activity. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, the Russians are going to, uh, you know, export every last drop of oil they can at the moment. It's an economic imperative uh, for the country uh, uh, due to the conflict in Ukraine. I think one of the key things here that, that we haven't discussed is whether we get a change in uh, G7 policy uh, uh, towards uh, these Russian uh, oil uh, flows in the market. Um, the sanctions regimes that have been set up have been designed to be porous, to allow Russian oil into the market. However, I think there is a growing sense, you know, certainly from policymakers that we talk to, that that that, that system has, has been abused um, uh, and whether it is effective. Um, certainly it has not been effective in limiting Russia's capacity to fight the war in Ukraine. So I think it's going to be interesting into the final uh, uh, part of this year, whether we see a change in, in the price cap whether we see uh, tighter regulation around possibly financial sanctions similar to what you have on Iran aimed at Russia. Of course, it's a balancing act because policymakers don't want to artificially push up the price of crude. They don't want to tip the world into a, a late 1970s oil shock scenario. Um, but they, they, they probably need to do more if they're serious about uh, uh, crimping Russia's ability to uh, um, continue to economically fight this war in Ukraine. Yeah, well, 
well, they've been serious that they want the crude to keep flowing. That's what they've effectively done so far. You Rust can't have your cake uh, and eat it. No, exactly. So they've made the choice, at least so far. Rustin, what about gas flows, Russian gas flows? Because, um, again, that's not really been a big part of Russia's practical strategy. They've made lots of statements around it. But somebody was telling me this week that there is actually a lot more gas still getting to Europe from Russia than, than is being declared, than is being sort of talked about. Where are we on that, do you think? Uh, well, there is a lot of gas flow still coming into Europe because Europe uh, is accepting the gas into their energy mix at the moment. Uh, Russia didn't make a statement that they're having problems sourcing repair parts for their GE-based turbines, which are used to move the gas through the systems. And so, uh, you know, that's probably harbinger to some type of shutdown that we're probably going to see when demand starts to increase. They'll probably cut supply saying, oh, my God, the turbines aren't working anymore. Too bad. Uh, however, you know, as we have that happen, more import capacity probably will be coming online as well from LNG supply sources. So I think EU will probably need to continue the incentives they have to uh, reduce consumption of energy, uh, which have been kept in place since 2022. Uh, they'll probably be extended another year. My guess that's you know that would be the practical thing to do uh, to try to keep energy energy consumption as low as possible, especially when it comes to net gas and incentivize transitioning to other fuel sources. Uh, but you know when you look at the net gas structure on the curve, it's in a massive contango. So there is the financial incentive to store today for tomorrow's consumption. Um, and you know, if anything, that's what should be pushing more traders to push nat, nat gas into the storage caverns and storage tanks around Europe because the pricing is there to do so. Okay, and David, we have a, an article this morning on, on, on uh, nat gas LNG, a new deal being signed by Qatar and China, another sort of contract, long-term LNG supply deal being signed there. Um, any, any takeaway from that? Was that expected, do you think? Is that a surprise? No, I think you can see this a little bit as a, as a signal towards Russia as well. Uh, Russia is evidently very keen to reroute its natural gas in the longer term, that is, uh, to China. I mean, it's happening at this time as well with, with, with the um, uh, pipelines. Uh, but uh, yeah, China appears to be very hesitant to make it more dependent on landlocked uh, supplies from Russia. And I think that's one of the ways how you see that uh, the Russian policy of the last uh, one and a half years is backfiring yeah? because they're simply not a, a, a reliable supplier to the market. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. otherwise um, it, it's clear that uh, China is still the growing market for, for LNG. Um, but overall, uh, if I may add one of my messages to, to clients as well, is that uh, don't bet too much into Chinese oil and energy dem demand growth down the line, uh, because it's already a pretty mature economy. Uh, it has a declining population. It has various structural problems in its economy. So all this slowdown over recent years, since 2020, has much more to it than just COVID. Um, and uh, from that point of view, it's uh, not any more given that you can sell more of everything uh, to China. Yeah? There are very few countries left that uh, have a very clear-cut growth path. India is one of those. Yeah? But uh, the very most countries, also in the Southern Hemisphere, are close to peak in terms of consumption or, or, or have already reached it. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, David. Andy, then, given that, uh, also, just going back to the price trade range that we're kind of looking at uh, going forward. I mean, would, would you would you say that China is, because of the reliance, the fact that, you know, that's going to determine marginal demand for, for oil this year, it can it effectively put a cap on prices on the price that it doesn't want to buy beyond, i.e. $80? I mean, is that, do you think that's an effective expectation for the rest of the year? 
Yeah, I think it, it it's it's a fair expectation. I mean, as we've said previously, China and aviation actually accounts for about forty five percent of the market in terms of demand. Um, uh, and 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 the international uh, jet demand from China has not yet picked up. Correct? The jet no, it hasn't. Demand, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. And and you know. Uh, you, you, you will get a clearer picture as the summer goes on, you know, whether you do get a seasonal, you know, pick up in jet in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere linked to kind of vacation season and so forth. But you haven't had that from, from from China at this point. The market is expecting that to come back. Our call at S&P Global Commodity Insights for Q3, Q4 is for, for crude to trade back above $80 a, a barrel on stronger fundamental pulls, um, primarily from demand. Um you know, again, I just come back to some of this bleak economic data that kind of we see everywhere now, you know, clear indications that that major economies in the Northern Hemisphere are heading into a stagflationary in, uh, uh, cycle. The thing is, it's not good for China. China being this huge export economy, this huge driver for, for, for uh, uh, consumer-based economies in the Northern Hemisphere, providing goods, uh, manufactured goods, you know, that's going to feed through to, to demand from China. So, Again, lots of uncertainty. We have the OPEC seminar in in July, not a full meeting, but all the OPEC ministers will be in Vienna for that meeting. Um, you know, have is they, the have, have, they invited, have they invited anyone this time? Well, yeah, that's you know that's that that's a good question. But again, you know, you come back to that, and it kind of shows the uh, schizophrenia is maybe the wrong word, but it, it shows how nervous. Um, OPEC is now about defending and the, this is the key thing and you can see this in the Gulf it's about defending this $70 uh, price floor you crash through that and they have a big problem and that's what they've been essentially doing they've been all these cuts announcing is a defense of a, of a floor rather than reacting to their expectations for demand at least at the moment there's our survey question which is which relates to what we've just been talking about that you know where's Brent crude like to be hemmed in and, and is it OPEC, obviously, on, on, on the floor and China on the cap that will really be um, keeping it in that range, agree or, or, or disagree? Um, Rustin, just back to you on, on China and manufacturing and what we're seeing from an indication of, for example, container rates that may be indicating how that may be shifting, if at all, in terms of exports, obviously, from China and how that might be impacting the container rate market. Well, the container market is, you know, I'm going to say it's probably hit the floor and, it, and it's kind of bouncing along the floor at the moment. And it's probably it's at pretty close to the same level it was pre-pandemic. Um, and, you know, it has overcapacity. So you need to have a lot of the older ships retired, squeeze back capacity, get things back in balance. So the supply and demand balance gets back in check and then rates can have a move to move, uh, have room to move higher. Uh, dry bulk, on the other hand, has been fairly weak, and dry bulk supplies a lot of the raw materials that go into China for manufacturing metals or uh, coal, uh, what have you, gypsum. Um, and that's been fairly weak and remains to be fairly weak. And so there's a lot to be said that if China's not pulling those products in, how much manufacturing are they going through? How much construction are they going through? I think when you look at the uh, the Chinese central bank yesterday, underwhelmed the markets with the stimulative action they did by cutting the one year in the five year interest rates by only 10 basis points. I think markets were expecting a bit bigger uh, move. Um, and so you have the Chinese government trying to figure out how much they can actually stimulate the economy and without people dumping their savings into the market, causing inflation to occur. So they are trying to balance that 
that action, at least that's what it looks like from an outsider, not looking, you know, not having any access to what you're talking about inside the central bank conversations. But nevertheless, I think that they still need to either figure out a way to stimulate internal demand or, um, you know, accept that there's going to be some contraction here over the next uh, two or three months. As uh, David said, you know, China's economy pre-COVID was in a slowdown mode. It's in a mature mode. I've said that before as well. Uh, and I think that's just going to continue going forward. People can't keep looking back in the rearview mirror of China of 2008 and 2012 and expect that same reaction today. David, what's the mood at the moment in Europe on, on sort of future demand, if you like, in terms of economic recovery from COVID? You could argue that's happening already or has happened. But again, the sort of cost of living crisis that hit Europe last winter and it's emerged out of that. What's the mood today? Yeah, I mean, Europe is generally not the biggest factor in terms of oil demand. Of course, it was a big factor last year with all the reshuffling. Um, I, I, I honestly, I, I struggle all the time. I agree with Andrew that if you read the news on economic indicators, it looks very bad. Yeah, um, uh, Europe is technically in a recession. I think the US is in a recession as well. Um, <clears throat> but um, if we look at our product trade flow data and also ultimately if we look at product pricing, um, it doesn't really look like the demand is actually doing that poorly. Yeah? So I think we have actually relative resistant, resilient uh, demand out there for transportation fuel specifically because people do want to travel. They are still having a little bit this uh, catch-up policy uh, wish after COVID. Um, so um, I, I'm, 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 I'm not too pessimistic on oil demand, no, I'm particularly optimistic, but I also think if we are lucky, yeah, and uh, there is definitely some element of luck in there. Uh, we may be relatively soon out of the worst as well. Yeah, it may be possible that we are already seeing a bottoming economy at this point of time, and then we could see actually yeah, a little bit of a recovery. Who knows? Perhaps over in the second half of the year, but definitely next year. Yeah, so I, I would generally a lot of people see more pressure next year than this year, but I would think mm. that uh, probably next year we already in recovery. Okay, I mean, and on that sort of next year versus this year and the sort of trickle effect of what the US has been doing with interest rates, how that's impacting not just China, but Europe and everywhere else, all central bank policy and uh, demand, consumer demand, if you like. Uh, I mean, are you of the view that we, or is the market, is the energy market expecting that trickle effect to really start hitting in the second half or maybe not until next year in terms of this shadow recession that we're expecting uh, in the US or, or elsewhere? Because so far, you know, consumer demand has been pretty strong in America. Uh, my own view, and this is something that I've written about, is that energy markets, commodity markets actually in general, have their heads in the, in the sand over this. I think there is a, 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 a big problem that, that hasn't yet been realised, and that is debt financing costs. It, you know, that we haven't really seen the full impact of how rising cost of capital that is going to come from, you know, as I said before, the Fed is going to tighten possibly, you know, twice before the end of the year. Bank of England, central banks all in the Northern Hemisphere. The big market for all these Chinese exported goods, the Northern Hemisphere, European, North American economies, you know, the, 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 the companies, the corporate environment that, that, that powers those economies, they're going to have a big problem on their balance sheets that opens up at, towards the end of this year, which is rising debt finance costs. So, so balance sheets are going to have to be readjusted everywhere. That is going to feed through to commodity demand. It's going to feed through to everything because company investment will fall. 
corporate activity will fall. This is from everything from SMEs through to large uh, uh, businesses. And you have this stagflationary cycle start to de develop. I've written about this and its impact potentially for, for commodity prices. Um, you, know, uh, 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 you know, we're not in the late 70s, early 80s yet um, because we haven't had that oil price shock. Do we get it at the end of the year if if things worsen in Ukraine? Who knows? Um, but economically, you know, all these stars are aligning for something that is 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 potentially quite disturbing. Uh, uh, and, and central banks are scrambling to put it in, into control. You know, you, you, what's happening in the UK now could be a harbinger what you see elsewhere the ecb is not done with inflation in europe despite what you've seen in spain and other pockets of the european economy where inflation seems to be under control um certainly in the us the fed is not done the bank of england not done and then you look at more fragile satellite economies turkey huge inflation uh, and now the government imposing uh, uh, uh you know wage controls or raising the limits on on, on low incomes uh, uh, to 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 try and adjust the economy. Egypt, fragile economies in the Middle East again, inflation rampant. I'm sure in the Gulf. I haven't looked at it recently, but Saudi, the core Gulf states. I know this has always been a theme when you've had um, um, uh, uh, you know markets as they are in the in in the region at the moment where you've had high inflation. I know in Dubai in the UAE. So you know you're getting these this these these economic dislocations everywhere, and I I just feel this is something I've written about that that commodity markets are kind of are ignoring this at the moment could be in for a shock. Yeah, and and certainly the inflation is, has has come a little bit under control, but but not completely yet. And 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 by all intents, the Fed's saying it still has this two percent as its target, but many people say there's no way it can continue to increase rates much further because then it's going to be you know getting into huge expenditure budgetary problems. There's our um, survey response, agree uh, 64%. Let me put on my glasses to be sure I'm reading it correctly. Yes, yeah, 64%. So yes, it will be hemmed in that tight range. And, and you know, Rustin was saying it's going to be even tighter. Rustin, we'll just give you a quick one minute last word um, on that. Just in terms of the Fed policy, and let's, let's assume we're going to see a bit more tightening towards the end of the year. That's continuing to support the dollar consistently. Had a bit of a wobble this year, but... It's essentially very strong. And that's, of course, impacting countries like Turkey and Egypt, um, you know, consumers of energy who have to buy their oil and dollars. How much of a factor do you think that has been in terms of impacting oil demand this year? Um, well, I mean, from an exchange rate standpoint, uh, I mean, it has probably had some impact. I think still cost of living is the bigger impact uh, because it's so much that, you know, if you're taking disposable income away from food to buy energy, most people are going to choose food over energy uh, if they can, yeah. uh, because you know nobody yeah. likes going hungry, but people can put a sweater on if it gets cold. Uh, nevertheless, um, you know I I think the strong dollar uh, has been uh, not supporting demand as much as people think, because we are coming from low baselines when you think of Asia and everything else back in Q4 last year, Q3, or, I'm sorry, Q4 of the year prior. Uh, and also Q4 of last year. So the baselines have been pretty low on demand. And with COVID reopening in China, that was supposed to be the spark of moving things up. Um, but the purchasing power has been diminished by a lot of households and a lot of people. So um, the strong dollar doesn't help, but I don't think it's the net reason why demand has been low. I think it has to do more with increase the cost of living and inflationary pressures on other uh, consumer goods requiring people to choose other things to buy. 
Uh, I mean, case in point, look at airfare. Airfare, transatlantic airfare, $3,000 across the pond from London to New York. Uh, that's pretty expensive compared to where it was two years ago, three years ago. Oh, my God. They have doubled, if not tripled. And even into Europe, airfares, forget crossing the Atlantic, you know, short haul, even here in the Gulf, uh, within the countries here, it's, it's, quite, it's quite astounding. Uh, but thank you so much, gentlemen. We've run out of time. Uh, Rustin Edwards. Uh, David Wech and Andy Critchlow, thanks so much for joining us. There's an interview that we had this week with Dr. Anas Fahaji, who touched on a lot of the points actually we talked about today. Um, the energy data uh, deterioration that I mentioned earlier uh, to David uh, and uh, Saudi cuts, etc. So a, a great interview there by Dr. Anas Fahaji. I, I encourage you all to listen in and tune in if you have time. Great to have you guys and uh, have a great week. Thank you. <laughs>